0: Gormangast, that is, the main massing of the original stone, taken by itself would have displayed a certain ponderous architectural quality were it possible to have ignored the circumfusion of those mean dwellings that swarmed like an epidemic around its outer walls. They sprawled over the sloping earth— each one halfway over its neighbor until, held back by the castle ramparts, the innermost of these hovels laid hold on the great walls, clamping themselves thereto like limpets to a rock. These dwellings, by ancient law, were granted this chill intimacy with the stronghold that loomed above them. Over their irregular roofs would fall throughout the seasons the shadows of time-eaten buttresses, of broken and lofty turrets, and, most enormous of all— the shadow of the Tower of Flints. This tower, patched unevenly with black ivy, arose like a mutilated finger from among the fists of knuckled masonry and pointed blasphemously at heaven. At night the owls made of it an echoing throat. By day it stood voiceless and cast its long shadow. Very little communication passed between the denizens of these outer quarters and those who lived within the walls, save when, on the first June morning of each year, the entire population of the clay dwellings had sanction to enter the grounds, in order to display the wooden carvings on which they had been working during the year. These carvings, blazoned in strange color, were generally of animals or figures, and were treated in a highly stylized manner peculiar to themselves. The competition among them to display the finest object of the year was bitter and rabid. Their sole passion was directed, once their days of love had guttered, on the production of this wooden sculpture, and among the muddle of huts at the foot of the outer wall existed a score of creative craftsmen whose positions as leading carvers gave them pride of place among the shadows. At one point, within the outer wall, a few feet from the earth, The great stones of which the wall itself was constructed jutted forward in the form of a massive shelf stretching from east to west for about two hundred to three hundred feet. These protruding stones were painted white, and it was upon this shelf that on the first morning of June the carvings were ranged every year for judgment by the Earl of Groan. Those works judged to be the most consummate and there were never more than three chosen—were subsequently relegated to the hall of the bright carvings. Standing immobile throughout the day, these vivid objects, with their fantastic shadows on the wall behind them shifting and elongating hour by hour with the sun's rotation, exuded a kind of darkness for all their colour. The air between them was turgid with contempt and jealousy— The craftsmen stood about like beggars, their families clustered in silent groups. They were uncouth and prematurely aged, all radiance gone. The carvings that were left unselected were burned the same evening in the courtyard below Lord Groan's western balcony, and it was customary for him to stand there at the time of the burning and to bow his head silently as if in pain. And then, as a gong beat thrice from within, the three carvings to escape the flames would be brought forth in the moonlight. They were stood upon the balustrade of the balcony in full view of the crowd below, and the Earl of Groan would call for their authors to come forward. When they had stationed themselves immediately beneath where he was standing, the Earl would throw down to them the traditional scrolls of vellum, which, as the writings upon them verified, permitted these men to walk the battlements above their cantonment, at the full moon of each alternate month. On these particular nights, from a window in the southern wall of Gormangast, an observer might watch the minute, moonlit figures whose skill had won for them this honour which they so coveted, moving to and fro along the battlements. Saving this exception of the day of carvings, and the latitude permitted to the most peerless, there was no other opportunity for those who lived within the walls to know of these outer folk nor in fact were they of interest to the inner world being submerged within the shadows of the great walls they were all but forgotten people the breed that was remembered with a start or with the unreality of a recrudescent dream the day of carvings alone brought them into the sunlight and reawakened the memory of former times for as far back as even nettle the octogenarian who lived in the tower above the rusting armoury could remember the ceremony had been held Innumerable carvings had smouldered to ashes in obedience to the law, but the choicest were still housed in the hall of the bright carvings. This hall, which ran along the top storey of the north wing, was presided over by the curator, Rotcod, who, as no one ever visited the room, slept during most of his life in the hammock he had erected at the far end. For all his dozing... He had never been known to relinquish the feather duster from his grasp, the duster with which he would perform one of the only two regular tasks which appeared to be necessary in that long and silent hall, namely to flick the dust from the bright carvings. As objects of beauty, these works held little interest to him, and yet in spite of himself he had become attached in a propinquital way to a few of the carvings. He would be more than thorough when dusting the emerald horse— the black and olive head which faced it across the boards, and the piebald shark were also his especial care, not that there were any on which the dust was allowed to settle. Entering at seven o'clock, winter and summer, year in and year out, Rotkard would disengage himself of his jacket and draw over his head a long grey overall which descended shapelessly to his ankles— With his feather duster tucked beneath his arm, it was his habit to peer sagaciously over his glasses down the length of the hall. His skull was dark and small like a corroded musket bullet, and his eyes behind the gleaming of his glasses were the twin miniatures of his head. All three were constantly on the move, as though to make up for the time they spent asleep, the head wobbling in a mechanical way from side to side when Mr. Rotcod walked, and the eyes, as though taking their cue from the parent sphere to which they were attached, peering here, there, and everywhere at nothing in particular. Having peered quickly over his glasses on entering, and having repeated the performance along the length of the north wing, after enveloping himself in his overall, it was the custom of Rotcod to relieve his left armpit of the feather duster, and with that weapon raised, to advance towards the first of the carvings on his right-hand side without more ado. Being on the top floor of the north wing, this hall was not in any real sense a hall at all, but was more in the nature of a loft. The only window was at its far end, and opposite the door through which Rotcod would enter from the upper body of the building. It gave little light. The shutters were invariably lowered. The hall of the bright carvings was illumined night and day by seven great candelabra suspended from the ceiling at intervals of nine feet— the candles were never allowed to fail, or even to gutter, Rotcod himself seeing to their replenishment before retiring at nine o'clock in the evening. There was a stock of white candles in the small dark anteroom beyond the door of the hall, where also were kept ready for use Rotcod's overall, a huge visitor's book, white with dust, and a step-ladder. There were no chairs or tables, nor indeed any furniture save the hammock at the window-end where Mr. Rotcod slept. The boarded floor was white with dust, which, so assiduously kept from the carvings, had no alternative resting-place, and had collected deep and ash-like.